The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The 2021 Top 100 Investment Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative. Includes assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory record, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money. This is Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Presented by Edelman Financial Engines, ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. And I'm Soledad O'Brien, and you are listening to Everyday Wealth. If you watch any news at all, even just one little bit of news. You've all been hearing the word recession more often, and and usually it's framed as a question. Are we heading into a recession? Uh, What are the key indicators leading into a recession? Uh, What should I do to weather the storm if, in fact, that storm is coming? We've had one down quarter of GDP growth. We're about a month out from knowing if that story is going to continue, which would then be an official recession by definition. And given that our show, Everyday Wealth, sits at the intersection of life and money and the impact, of course, that recessions can have on people's lives and their money can be very significant, we're going to dive into all of it and probably uh, talk about this for a little while. Certainly, while the headlines are dominating the news and continue to be a concern for so many people and, and so many families. We will be bringing on different experts to help us have these conversations as well. We'll be talking to economists and financial analysts and behavioral experts who you all know are my favorite. They'll be here to help us answer questions and and navigate all of the different factors that we are dealing with day in and day out across the media to help us understand them and to help us figure out how to incorporate all of these suggestions into our everyday lives. As you all know, by this point, this show is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. And that means that every week we also benefit from the expertise of wealth planners from EFE. And when the financial markets and the economy have you nervous, I think just having somebody who can look out for your best interest brings a little bit of calm, reduces a little bit of stress in that situation. So if you want to work with somebody who will put your interests first, you can always give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call. They're at 833-PLAN-EFE or planefe.com. And Gene, we have a great show today. Mark Zandi is going to join us. He's the chief economist for Moody's Analytics. He also has his own podcast. It's called Inside Economics. And he is going to help us understand all the things that we're seeing in the news and put them in context. And then we're going to be joined by John McCafferty, a wealth planner from Edelman Financial Engines. Lots of questions for him, given the state of the markets. And of course, as an investor, maybe it's time to just be thinking about cash. That's that's probably my biggest question for him. That's a question I've been getting a lot, too. I'm excited to dig into it. You know, Soledad, people who listen to this show on a weekly basis know that this is the point where we usually dig into the financial 
financial news of the week. We're not going to do that right now because our conversation with Mark Zandi is going to be about the financial news of the week. So let's get right to it. Let's bring Mark in. Mark, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you here. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. We want to jump right in, Mark. So we have seen one quarter of GDP contraction. We're about a month away from knowing if it'll be two. Do you care to wager on where it's going? Well, I think it'll be a positive number. Our, our tracking estimate, you know, based on all the state data we've gotten so far in the quarters, it'll come in around 2.5%, so a positive quarter. But, I mean, you're suggesting that perhaps the economy is really struggling and on the verge of recession because of the old rule of thumb that if you have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, that's a recession. But uh, that's not what we're in now. The economy is strong, and you can see it in the job market. We're creating close to half a million jobs each and every month, and that's that's a very strong economy. So I, I don't think I'd put too much weight on the GDP number if you're trying to gauge how the economy is doing. What do we weigh when we're looking at how the economy is doing? Clearly GDP, clearly uh, unemployment numbers, because I think there are plenty of people, Mark, who would argue with you and say, how can you say the economy is strong? Look at all these people who are freaking out about inflation. Look at all these people who are literally concerned that they're not going to be able to pay some of their bills, who are complaining about the high cost of gas day in and day out. What, what makes it strong or weak in your mind? Well, I'd make a distinction between the economy's growth rate and uh, inflation. Inflation, obviously, is a problem. It's very high, painfully high. We're paying record at the, at the gas pump uh, for food. So you know, no doubt about that. But in terms of the economy's growth, uh, I think the thing that I'd focus on, and I think most people would, would be jobs. I mean, how many jobs are being created? What's the unemployment rate? Uh, you know, you know uh, look at all the unfilled positions. That That is consistent with a very strong economy. In fact, those two things, to some degree, go hand in hand, right? If you have a, uh, an economy that's really strong and busting out all over, that's when you have inflationary problems. So that's the kind of environment we're in, a very strong economy, but one with very high, un- uncomfortably high inflation. When you are looking at the markets. We we make this point on this show from time to time that the economy and the markets are separate. And and yet we've seen so much volatility in the markets. How does that factor into this bigger picture? Well, you know, the, the markets, if, when you say the markets probably mean the stock market, uh, they, they go up, they go down, they go all around. I mean, there's an old quip uh, by a former uh, Nobel laureate in economics who said that uh, the stock market has predicted nine of the last five recessions, and I think that encapsulates it well. You know, it can go down. The stock market can go down and the economy not follow. I will say, though, the economy has never suffered a recession without the stock market kind of leading the way, without it uh, declining beforehand, in, in part because investors are forward-looking and they're thinking about how companies are doing or, and will do in the future. And if they think companies are going to struggle, they start selling stock, uh, their stocks, and, and that is a leading indicator of a future problem in the economy. And also, to some degree, there's causality there, right? When stock prices are down a lot and they stay down, people feel less wealthy. If they're less wealthy, they spend less. And of course, that contributes to the decline in economic activity. So uh, the stock market's a very important barometer, but you you need to take it with uh, that that proverbial grain of salt because it can go down in, in the economy, not. The other thing I'd point out in the current context, the market's down. It's down about 15% from its peak. But, you know, 
that's from its all-time peak after a very long, uh, significant run-up in prices. In fact, even with the decline in uh, stocks, uh, stock prices we've seen to date, uh, you know, if you've been invested over the last five years, you're making double-digit returns. If you've invested over the last 10 years, you're making double-digit returns. So stock investors have done very well despite this uh, correction in, in prices today. Does it look to you like you can see where it bottoms out? If that, that sounds very dramatic for what you're describing, which is sounds very not dramatic. But like, where does it kind of end? And people say, okay, now we've kind of gotten to the bottom of this and now we're heading back up. Or is that impossible to predict realistically? Well, that's a tough one. And I, I wouldn't make any investments based on my call. <laughs> Just asking, asking for a friend named uh, Soledad who is curious about her own portfolio. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, because, you know, most people, they shouldn't even look at what's going on in the stock market, right? They should be invested for the long run and investing regularly in up and down markets because timing the peaks, the bottoms, that's, you know, virtually impossible. You can't do it, you know, on a consistent basis. But, you know, I'd say that uh, if the economy is not going to suffer a recession, and I don't think it will, but uh, if it doesn't, then the bottom in price, stock price is probably close at hand. You know, maybe we go down, we get to a bear market, which is down 20%. We haven't quite gotten there yet. But if we go into recession, then the market will go down a lot more, you know, probably you know closer to 30%. So we're halfway done. So hopefully the economy hangs in there and uh, we're down 15, 20%. Uh, the other thing I'd say, though, on stocks, I don't think I count on, you know, the double-digit per annum kind of returns we've been getting over the last five, ten, you know, even longer periods of time, because going forward, uh, interest rates aren't going any lower. They're, you know, in all likely going higher, and that's a headwind to stocks. So I, I, if you know, I think if you were prudent about this, you kind of plan for kind of five percent annualized returns as opposed to ten percent, which we've been getting over a long period, of, long a period of time up till now. Okay, so I. I'm smiling. You can't see that. I'm smiling here because you and I had a conversation maybe eight years ago, and and you made the same exact point, Mark. I agree with you. I think if we plan on five or six percent returns and we get ten, that's great. If we plan on ten and we get five, we've undersaved and underfunded our futures, and that's a big problem. But make the case for that five or ten percent now as compared to eight years ago where we really got more? Well, it's about interest rates, and interest rates got to just levels that, if you asked me eight years ago, would we get to the zero lower bound? Well, I guess we did get to the zero lower bound, but would you know, long-term interest rates, 10-year Treasury yields get below 3%. In fact, I think last year in the teeth of the pandemic, we were closer to the, you know two and a half, two to two and a half percent. I'd say that you know that's not likely, or certainly not likely for any extended period of time. And I and I still think that's you know we can't you can't count on those kind of interest rates. They're not consistent with a well-functioning, healthy economy. And ultimately, rates will normalize and stock prices will normalize. And the other thing I'd say is. I, I definitely wrong, but I, that, this means that I'm more convicted in my opinion right now. <laughs> uh, just because the market's overvalued, you know, it's just relative to you know the where interest rates should be in the long run, where stock prices should be in the long run, they're they're still overvalued, and therefore we'll get more pedestrian returns. It just didn't uh, happen in the last eight years, but you know that just makes me more confident it'll happen in the next eight. 
So when we are talking about what people should do, about how people should handle this, about how how we plan for our individual futures, our personal economies, as we like to talk about on this show, um, you know, consumers right now are fighting inflation. We're starting to see them spend down the savings that they accumulated, the excess savings, the trillions in excess savings accumulated during the pandemic with all the stimulus and the the not spending on travel and eating out. That's that's being dipped into. If you were to lay out a roadmap for the individual investor going forward, what what are the what's the playbook? What steps do they follow now and are they different than in any other economy? Uh, no, uh, I don't think it should be any different. I mean, you should save. Uh, you know, you need to uh, sock away uh, some of your earnings you know, on a consistent basis. And um, you know, the more the better, uh, obviously, because uh, your nest egg will be larger in the future if you save more now. Uh, and you should do it on a consistent basis. And uh, you, you know, depending on your age. Depending on your risk tolerance, you know how much you can tolerate markets being down and up and all around. That'll determine, you know, what you invest in. But generally, you know, most people, you know, if they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, when people do most of their saving, they they should be saving a lot of that in first of all their their home housing if they can. Although right now might not be the greatest time to do that, but you know, uh, housing is important to building wealth. Stocks, you know, are also you know very important as well because they they will return uh, uh, have a higher return than most other asset classes and generally a relatively cheap way of investing. So I think though the key here is to save in a consistent way, in, in a sense almost on it's on automatic pilot if you can do it. I mean, just take the money have, have the money taken out of your account on a regular basis every month. But the, 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 the key here is saving all the time, consistently, over time. So here's my question about inflation. What has to happen to get it under control? And when people talk about inflation as something the government, the administration, can just do a thing to bring it under control, is that is that accurate? And to what degree are company profits, which seem like they're up, they're great at this moment, is that playing a role in inflation, meaning if companies said like, hey, we just if our profits weren't so high, we could actually be helpful in bringing inflation down. And are those stupid questions? Or are those good no, questions? No, they're actually. Oh, that's uh, the right answer, Mark. Thank you. Critical <laughs> questions. I mean, because <laughs> that is key to understanding, you know, what can or should be done about bringing down the high rate of inflation. And there's a lot of debate uh, about this. But in my view, the reason why inflation is as high as it is is because of the pandemic, scrambled global supply chains, and you can see that in lots of different ways, and most obviously in, in, in what's happening in the vehicle industry and vehicle prices. Scrambled labor markets, you know, people have been shoved out of the labor market, and they're, it's taking them time to get back in for lots of different reasons. Uh, and then the other key reason is the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has just sent oil prices and thus gasoline prices, and because... Uh, diesel prices are key to food prices and other other goods. You know, we've seen inflation go skyward here. So, in in my view, the high inflation is as a result of two things that we have very little control over: the pandemic and the Russian invasion. 
if that's the case, then getting inflation down requires that we get on the other side of those two things. I, I think we're that's happening. I mean, it feels like the pandemic is fading. It's still a problem. You can see that in China. So it's not uh, it's not gone away, but it's fading. That's good. And I do think the worst of the economic fallout from the Russian invasion is at hand, although I say that with a lot of intrepidation. But that's that. those two things are vitally key. And that does suggest that, you know, the uh, ability of the Federal Reserve uh, and certainly the administration and Congress to really have a big impact on inflation, certainly in the near term, is very limited, you know, very, uh, very small. I will say, you know, one other element to inflation that's going to become more of a deal if the economy doesn't slow, though, is the tight labor market. I mean, we are at full employment. If the economy continues to grow at this current pace, we're going to blow past full employment. Wage Wages are going to rise more quickly. And we get into that kind of wage price kind of uh, self-reinforcing dynamic that's a problem. I don't think that's a, a big deal yet, but that's what the Fed is focused on. They're trying to slow the growth rate in the economy so that we don't get into that situation. But at the end of the day, it's about the pandemic and the invasion. And how about corporate profits? <clears throat> I, you know, there's, uh, you know, a lot of. I don't think that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some uh, uh, folks that think you know, corporate greed, gouging, are a significant factor here in inflation. I, I, I just don't see it. I mean, I, I do think there are some industry sectors where the market is, the, the industries are concentrated in, people, in business that uh, pricing power, the meatpacking industry is like the poster child for that. But that's really on the margin. Not that, you know, the administration and lawmakers shouldn't be shining a bright light on corporate pricing practices because you want to keep people honest. And that's, you know, part of their remit. They they, they should be doing that. But I, I don't think at the end of the day, that's a significant contributor to what's going on here. So there was a, a story recently in um, uh, in the p- paper, I, I think it was the New York Times, it may have been the Wall Street Journal, that that took a look at, at the wages that people at the, the largest companies in the country were earning. And it said, you know, they are for the first time in a long time up by about 10%. But the people who are earning those wages are not able to keep up because of inflation, right? It, it it's it, we've been watching stagnant wage growth in this country for what a decade and a half, maybe even longer, and we finally get some wage growth, and it's accompanied by inflation or it's caused by inflation. How how do we not? have a wage price spiral at this point? Well, I, I think the wage, it, 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 we don't if inflation expectations don't uh, come undone. So it, it, if people, businesses, consumers, workers think that inflation is going to be high in the future, we will go into that kind of dreaded wage price dynamic. So workers will say hey to, to their employer, hey, you got to pay me more because it costs me a lot more to fill my gas tank to come to work and pay for childcare and you know the clothes that I need to go to work. And the, and the businessman's going or woman's going to say, "Okay, I have no problem," because I, they know that they can pass through that higher price, uh, the, the higher labor cost to their their customer, and you get into that kind of self-reinforcing dynamic. It's, so it's about expectations, but. If if people think in the future inflation is going to come back down and be close to you know where the Fed wants it, the two percent, then that wage price dynamic, self-reinforcing dynamic, is unlikely to take hold. And I, and right now, it, uh, this is a success story, and one reason why I'm 
feeling more confident that we're going to avoid a recession is the Fed, because of its very strong, aggressive talk and recent, recently very aggressive actions, inflation expectations have come back down. Uh, people believe that inflation is going to be lower. If that's the case, then I think these wage gains, these outsized wage gains and price increases we've experienced over the last year will start to abate and come back in. So uh, it's all about, I think, about expectations, whether we get into that wage price spiral or not. And at this point, it feels like we're going to be able to avoid it. That's Mark Zandi. He's a chief economist uh, for Moody's Analytics and has his own podcast, which is called Inside Economics. Thank you, Mark. Take care now. You too. Bye. We've got to take a quick break right now, but we'll talk more about the steps you should and shouldn't take to prepare for a possible recession when we get back. Stay with us. Those who've built their own financial success know that moving forward requires not just the right tools, but an in-depth knowledge of how to use them. That's why Edelman Financial Engines gives you a dedicated wealth planner supported by a team of experts. By combining human insight and advanced technology, we provide a truly tailored experience to your needs and goals. Call 888-912-0373 or visit efewealthplanners.com to get your complimentary financial plan. We're back with you on Everyday Wealth. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jean Chatsky. I'm here with Soledad O'Brien. If you are looking to talk with a wealth planner, if you've got questions about your personal situation, you can always pick up the phone and call 833-PLAN-EFE. You can visit planefe.com as well. And fortunately, every week we are guided by experts from Edelman Financial Engines. Let me bring into our conversation John McCafferty. John is, of course, a wealth planner with Edelman Financial Engines. He's been here before. Welcome back to the show, John. How are things in Virginia? Things are well. Thanks, Gene. I really appreciate it. Uh, things are quite well down here in Alexandria, and uh, I hope everyone is coming off a, a very enjoyable holiday weekend. Well, how are things in the economy is the question we really want to ask you. <laughs> um, because we've been talking, as you've heard, of course, about what's happening in the market, the market being forward-looking, but we're seeing, obviously, this big drop, right? The S&P's down about 13%. The NASDAQ down more than 20%. Dow Jones down almost 9%. Crypto is just basically imploded. We don't even need to get into the numbers on that. If I'm an investor, and my husband and I have been having this very conversation, isn't it time to say, let's make sure we're protected and just go to cash right now so that we can wait out the next, I don't know, Brad thinks two years, um, you know, of whatever's going to happen? It's a good question. And it's understandable why some folks might be feeling that way or at least asking the question. So before I answer it, let's try to offer some context. There's one particular data point I am paying attention to known as the misery index. And what's that? Sounds terrible. It does, but, it? But, my, my, but, I, <laughs> but I'm intrigued. Well, it ties in inflation, consumer sentiment, uh, a variety of other sort of economic data points. And at the moment, it's higher or worse than it was in 2008. And I think that's a pretty good summary of what is going on right now, where there's a lot of people maybe feeling not so great about things. And there may be a bit of a disconnect between how people are feeling and how things are actually unfolding in the economy. Can I push back on this misery index, though? Because I think this gut feeling on how it's going, 
has got to be influenced a lot by social media, which is in a very different place today than it was back in 2008. I mean, let's be real. Twitter is basically a horrific cesspool of just ugliness. And some of that has to drag people down, even those folks who have a good job, whose job is stable, whose employers are throwing some money at them because they want to make sure they don't lose the employees that they have in the great resignation I think it's more apples and oranges when you talk about how people feel, you know, how miserable are you feeling in an environment where the country's politically divided and social media is pretty terrible at this moment as well. And just to pile on, I think the misery index at this point is 100% about the price that you're paying for gas. I think it's inflation. I think people are looking at things and they're just saying, oh my God, I just paid $6 for a pound of butter, which I did, right? I went and I wanted to bake something. That makes you miserable and it's in well, your Well, that face. was your first mistake. Don't bake any. Don't do any cooking. It's really expensive. Oh, <laughs> so, Gene, to your point, I think that's why people may be feeling like it. it is maybe the equivalent of you know, fourth quarter of 2018, or maybe even 2008, or maybe first quarter of 2020, because it's directly affecting their purchases. So let's try to put some perspective or context around what's going on in the markets. Maybe your portfolio is down somewhere between 8 to 15% year to date. Well, if we go back to, say, March of 2020, as we're going through the COVID crash, uh, the market, and when I say the market, I'm referencing the S&P 500. It dropped roughly 35%. All right, that was the fastest 30-plus percent decline in the history of the stock market, okay? If we go back even further to, say, October of 07 through March of 09, the S&P fell about 52%, okay? But what, what followed after that? And we'll just stick with 2008. So from March of 09... Through February of 2020, that's about 131 months, the market went on to gain, and there again, I'm, I'm referencing the S&P 500, it went on to gain 401%. All right, so here we are in February of 2020. What's going on? The COVID crash. The market has this historical decline. And in that moment, remember, you feel like you're down dramatically, but at that point, the market is still up 370%. And as always... Past performance does not predict future results. And so that is some of what's going on right now where, Gene, I mean, you said it very well. People are going to the grocery store. They're filling up their gas tanks, and they're feeling it a lot more because of inflation. Yet, when we look at the activity in the market, I don't think it's quite as bad as people are feeling. Let's not forget, in 2021, the S&P 500 was up 28%. You could argue, did it deserve to go up that much? It's about putting things into proper perspective. So I think your answer to Soledad's question about going to cash is no, right? I mean, you're telling your clients, no, don't go to cash. I think people have money in the stock market that should be in cash. I think people have money in the stock market that they need in the next three, four, maybe even five years to pay for college tuition, to pay for a wedding, to put a down payment on a house, to carry them through the first few years of retirement without worrying that they're going to have to sell stocks in their portfolio at a loss, and they haven't rebalanced, that money should come out and should go to cash. 
I agree with some of what you said, Gene. Where <laughs> did you get at, that? Some yeah, of what very, you very, said. he couched right. it very politely, but he's like, nah, meh, nah. You mentioned this time frame or time horizon of three years. I completely agree with you. If you have a definitive goal, whether it's a college tuition bill or whether if you think you are intending to retire within the next two to three years, yes, you are someone that should consider maybe not pumping the brakes on your portfolio unless it's overly aggressive and that's part of what I help review with my clients or anyone who's interested in speaking with me. But you may want to consider adding to whatever cash reserves you already have. What if you don't have a goal in mind? See, this is where we got into this debate, which is just if you have a sense of uncertainty, since I don't think my children are dating anybody, I'm going to say no weddings that aren't in your future. (laughs) Sorry, kids. I've always promised not to talk about you on the air, but here we go. Um, You know, so I, I don't feel like I have some looming deadline that I need to have access to cash for. I'm just nervous about not knowing what's going to happen in the economy. And as a small business owner, right, the minute the economy goes south, all of my clients suddenly constrict. Their spend really goes much smaller. And that impacts us and impacts us right away. So I guess the reason that we were talking about cash was just to be able to say, hey, if something happens in the next, maybe be able to cover the next couple of years, um, but I don't have any big expenses looming. I just think it's like a protective thing versus that category. True, true. And so part of my role as a wealth planner is to help guide you to decisions that will lead to increased wealth over the long term. So I, I agree with the two to three time horizon. Having a sufficient level of cash, we generally recommend our clients carry three to 24 months of net expenses in cash reserves. Now, I think what's worth going into more detail around is why. Why, why should I stay invested? And I've offered a few data points. Let me offer a few more, okay? So this is according to Bank of America. And again, I'll reference the S&P 500. This is going back to 1930. If an investor sat out the 10 best days per decade since 1930, their total return would have been 28%. However, if they just remained invested in the S&P since 1930 to present day, their total return would have been 17,715%. Now, that might be a little too long of a time horizon for people to fully uh, comprehend. So let me narrow it and down. And you might be bit. dead also because that's yeah, true. So, that. right. There's that. Right. right. I only experienced 5,000% of that growth because I didn't live long enough. But let's narrow it down a bit. These statistics that I'm offering regarding the S&P 500, these are coming from Dalbar. So from 1989 to 2018, the S&P 500 averaged, I'm rounding off a bit, an average annual rate of return of 10%. The average annual return of the individual investor who made their own buy and sell decisions was 4%. The same applies to bond funds or bond investments from 1989 to 2018. The Barclays Aggregate Bond Index averaged about 6%. The individual investor who made their own buy and sell decisions within the bond market averaged about 2%. And this is the big why. Here's the big reveal is because when things become increasingly uncertain, and right now the level of uncertainty is about as high as I've seen it, individual investors can fall victim to maybe their own thought process or maybe their their lack of an actual investment process. It is times like these where having an actual investment strategy, an actual plan, 
is the most valuable. And having a person. I mean, having a person on your team. Look, I mean, when things went down so far so fast in 2020, I had some very big heart-to-hearts with my advisor. And I think if you don't have somebody who can talk you down off the ledge, you need somebody. And you can always reach out to an advisor from Edelman Financial Engines at 833-PLAN-EFE or planEFE.com. John, I think that three to five year time frame is a really, really difficult one. If three years is short term and five years is long term, where's the cutoff point? And what is somebody who is, say, five years out from retirement, how do they play this right now? It is specific to one situation. So what I want to hone in on is how dependent will this particular person be or this couple be upon their portfolio for income. And the only way you figure that out is by getting a sense of what do they spend every month, determining what income sources they will have when they do retire, and then whatever's left over, they will be relying upon their portfolio to cover that need. The two to three year time frame, that's where I'm more proactively talking to people, encouraging them to, yes, consider building more cash. Because if we happen to go into a recession, your time frame for retirement might be right in line with when a recession could possibly occur. However, if you're looking at retirement in, say, five years or more, you could be in the ideal position where as you're retiring, a recession is in your rearview mirror. I mean, I believe that's the ideal place to be, is if a recession occurs a year or two or three before you actually retire, you can sail into retirement knowing that recession is freshly in my rearview mirror. So History says the probability of one happening in the first five years of my retirement are lower. So the difference here is time to recovery. If you're two to three years, yeah, let's talk about strategies that involve building up more cash or maybe being more tactical with your 401k. We've covered this on the program before where if you're not able to build up cash reserves, maybe you don't add as much to your 401k so that you can build more of a cash reserve. But if you're looking at retirement, say, four to five years from now, You always want to have a cash reserve, but I don't think you need to adjust your portfolio all that much, if at all. For me, at least, it feels like, uh, you know, you you get anxious. You you don't know what's coming down the path. And I just feel like, well, you know, then maybe the strategy is protect yourself and and get into cash and, and get out of the market so that you're at least protected. Listen, with all these news reports, it just feels like there's a lot of elements that are making me anxious. Yeah. I mean, emotions are high right now. And a big part of my role is to talk people through this, not to sugarcoat things or recommend, hey, just bury your head in the sand. It'll be okay. But no, let's face this head on. So let me talk about a few things that I share with my clients to offer perspective. With the markets being lower, I like to remind them that there are two sides to every transaction. Remember, if you want to get out, the only way you can get out is if someone else is getting in. So which investor do you want to be? Do you want to be the person that's engaging in the classic error of selling low and buying high. Something else that I think is really helpful, I'm taking this from what's called the prospect theory. So I think a lot of people are familiar with this idea that the pain of loss far exceeds sort of the thrill of victory. And I think that really is what a lot of people are experiencing right now. One critical point to the prospect theory is this. What's your reference point? What are you comparing your balances to right now? And by and large, I think most people are comparing their current account balance to where it was at the end of 2021 after the S&P had gone up 28%. I would suggest you compare your current balances 
to where they were in, say, January of 2020, before the COVID crash. And think about everything that's occurred over the last two plus years. And I think what you'll realize is that when you use the correct reference point, comparing your balances now to where they were in, say, January of 2020, you're actually wealthier. And that's despite everything that's happened, including this recent. So when someone sits in your office, John, do you literally go into their file and do that for them? Like, say, like, let's actually look at what the numbers were. Let's talk real numbers and not how we're feeling Mm -hmm. about a thing. That's exactly what I do is you need to plug in numbers. You need to make it real. I'm not here to make people feel good about things when things aren't good. You need to find another reference point because if you compare it to the end of 2021, you're only going to be miserable. And that's why the misery index or part of why the misery index is as high as it is because you're using the wrong reference point. There are two other things I think that are important to pay attention to when you talk about that. And the first is when you look at the individual investments, and, and this is something at Her Money, I'm teaching a course called Investing Fix. We're teaching women how to invest. We always ask the question about the individual investments that we're parsing, do I want to own it at today's price? If it's still something that you would own at today's price, even if you bought it higher, even if it's come down, then you have to continue to own that. And that's another particularly helpful thing to hold on to. The other thing is, well, what else are you going to do with the money? And if you put the money in cash right now, because inflation is so high, you're losing 9% a year, not even considering taxes. You are losing 9% a year in purchasing power. That's not a good option. Right. You're absolutely correct. And the frustrating thing right now is that history tells us that in periods of higher inflation, which obviously we're in, stocks are the asset class that you want to own. Historically, that's true. It's just right now, it's not working and people are sort of shrugging or scratching their heads saying, huh, well, how come this isn't working? Well, the game is still being played. It's far from over. And this is why we encourage people to be a long-term investor. And unquestionably, there is such a high degree of uncertainty right now. And that's one of the most valuable things that a wealth planner can provide to their clients is a place where they can come for perspective, for comfort in times like these, and just for real answers. We're not shying away from anything. It's just right now there's so many different variables at play all at once. It's very difficult to determine what will happen next. It's important to reiterate the why, not just utter the phrase of stay the course or be a long-term investor. You need to fill that in or back it up with numbers, experience, and real answers for people so that they don't make decisions that end up diminishing their wealth in the long run as opposed to increasing it. If you're listening and you're just not sure what to do with your finances, given all the uncertainty, well, here's a few things that I would recommend you start out with. Number one, I would track your spending. You want to know where your money is going. So track your spending. It doesn't have to be a monthly exercise. We don't put people on budgets, but at a very minimum, at the very minimum, I would recommend you track your spending at least once every six months and try to do it with your significant other if you have one. So that is the first thing I would do. Secondly, I would take a look at how is your money invested? Is it properly diversified? Do you have too much in stocks? Do you not have enough in stocks? Are you not sure? Which leads me to the third point. Who are you working with? Who is your financial advisor? Is it you? Would you pay yourself or or would you charge other people for the financial advice you're giving yourself? 
If so, congratulations. But if not, I would consider working with a financial professional. And if you're not sure which direction to head in, once again, you can always reach out to us here at Edelman Financial Engines at 833-PLAN-EFE, or you can visit us at planefe.com. Thanks so much for listening to us today. If you have a question that you want us to answer, just visit us at planefe.com. Go to the Everyday Wealth page. And if you're interested in a past show, you can download Everyday Wealth wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to us today. Thanks to Mark Zandi, Chief Economist for Moody's Analytics, for an amazing conversation. And thanks, as always, to John McCafferty from Edelman Financial Engines for being with us. Soledad, always a pleasure to be with you. Yes, ma'am. And I'll see you and everybody else next week. Take care, everybody. For more Everyday Wealth content, go to planefe.com and click on the Everyday Wealth page and check out the audio library of over 100 clips and highlights from the show. You can also submit a question or topic suggestion while you're there. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Listen in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com. Find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.